heavily, I'm a clown. What's up, guys? Welcome back. It's episode 15 of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. This week, I had a chat with Matt O'Dell. Him and I discussed in great depth and detail the events surrounding Segwit2x and all of the implications behind it about Bitcoin and its decentralization. Stick around at the end if you want to hear more about the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, but for now, let's jump right into it. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Matt, how you doing, man? How's it going? Happy to be here. I'm doing excellent. Well, actually, I'd be lying if I said I was excellent. I'm all hopped up on Benadryl right now. So if I sound a little bit wonked out, it, that's that's the reason. I know that feel. When, when yeah, you got to record, you got to record, though. That's right. Power through. So, yeah, I brought you on today because I really want to talk about some things that I personally think are extremely important. And... You know, I'm I'm relatively new to this space compared to some of the people who have been, you know, in Bitcoin since like 2011, 2012, or even like 2014. Um, and and I didn't really start to understand the key differences, like especially the technical differences between Bitcoin and a lot of the other stuff out there until I was doing a retrospective of Segwit2x. Now, Segwit2x happened while I was in Bitcoin, but I was completely oblivious to it. I had no idea it was going on. All I knew was that this new coin called Bitcoin Cash came out and everyone was talking about it. But there are a lot of people out there who, who lived through this event and they lived to tell the tale, right? And, and we're still here today. And there was a lot of lessons to be learned from uh, Segwit2x. So I thought we could do a deep dive into that today and it might be really beneficial for the listeners. How the hell were you oblivious to Sega 2X while it was going on? Were you, do you not, were you not reading news or anything? Too busy looking. Well, you know, you see the word Segwit 2X, but you don't know what that means. You know what I mean? Like, so if put um, in my shoes, I, I'm coming in, you know, I'm not a coder. I don't have a coding background. Uh, I, I'm coming in and I see all these coins that are making money. I see Bitcoin is making money. I see... Uh, all these people on YouTube that are talking about Ripple and talking about cloud mining and talking about BitConnect, uh, Segwit2x just doesn't sound that interesting to me, you know, <laughs> as as this new guy coming in, right? So uh, I don't. It was probably just willful ignorance more than anything. That's when I think Segwit2x. You know, I've been like pretty active in like Bitcoin social media, you know, like Reddit and IRC and Bitcoin Talk. Um, for a while, but most of the time I was I was using a NIM, and Segwit2x got like so real on Twitter. It was when I really started to dox myself. Was because we <laughs> I completely destroyed my opsec, but because it was such a big deal. I mean, I remember that that like consumed consumed my life for for six months there, eight months there. Um, so, so Segwit2x for a little background, we probably have been 
you know, I got involved in Bitcoin in like 2013. The scaling debate, how to scale properly has has probably gone on was it started even before before my time. Um, so it had been going on for years. How do we how do we properly scale Bitcoin? Um, and we you have this arbitrary, not you know, kind of arbitrary block size limit of one megabyte um, that Satoshi put in place, however many years ago, because block size was barely being used, and there was this far off uh, risk factor that some random miner could make a, a huge block and just orphan mm. off all the other blocks. So he put in this like little protection. And then, you know, whenever he disappeared and, it, you know, started to kind of get set in stone. So the actual, the actual size is, is like, it's like kind of arbitrary. It's just like what it, it's what it is. It's what, it's what we have right now. The right. important thing is, is how, if that gets changed, how that gets changed and and what the balance is between what the balance is between um fees versus robustness versus censorship resistance and decentralization there's a um there's a it's an inverse relationship decentralization and uh, decentralization versus fee cost, basically, like the price of, of mm -hmm. the system. If you have a centralized mm -hmm. system, it'll always be cheaper and faster to use. Um, right. So, so the key is where do those priorities lie? So you ended up having two camps. And one of the interesting things here is when I first started off, I was actually a big blocker. I have, like, I have articles, uh, I, like I I th I think I wrote an article for like TechCrunch or something where like I was backing Gavin's plan his like original plan I think his original plan was like eight megabytes or something per block. Um, Interesting. But anyway, there was tons of debate on on Reddit on on I wasn't really big on Twitter yet at that point, but a lot of Reddit and Bitcoin talk and IRC, and I started to realize that that you do have this you do have this uh, inverse relationship between centralization and, uh, well, obviously, between decentralization and low fees. So mm -hmm. the inverse relationship is, is that if, if we, have, we have two sets, we have, I guess we have three sets of stakeholders on the Bitcoin network. You have users, you have, you have nodes, you know, users could be running nodes as well, and miners, and they also are kind of users too. Um, right. The the miners are getting paid for their work. The nodes aren't being paid. So right. if you increase if you increase the burden on the nodes by increasing the block size, then it will become more expensive to run a node. And not only will it become more expensive to run a node, uh, the it'll become less accessible. In some parts of the world, you won't be able to. Uh, even get that kind of internet, even if you wanted to. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you end up reducing node counts. And then ultimately, 
at the extreme, you end up in something like a, like an EO situation where you have like 12 nodes or however many nodes they have. And then right. when you're in that kind of situation, the way you'd censor a transaction or you, or you uh, censor a transaction or you steal money or you shut down the network is by just pressuring those 12 people or those 12 organizations. Right. If you're the U.S. government, it's as simple as, you know, sending subpoenas and raiding them or whatever. Um, right. So, so that's the well, extreme. If I could... Yeah, continue. So there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of nuance there to unpack, I think, and I want to let you. I want to let you kind of get through the uh, overview of Segwit2x before we jump into the nuance. But I think it's important to point out that you know a lot of the other coins that that claim to have a distributed network, a lot of their nodes are actually run on virtual servers because the cost of maintaining that locally can be a little bit prohibitive. Like Ethereum and, and XRP, for example, I know run a lot of their nodes on AWS. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the thing is, we, you can't tell how many nodes are like real nodes um, versus how many aren't uh, because that, that's the reason proof of work exists in the first place. Uh, for, because because if you, you can just spin up thousands of nodes on AWS. That's why when people say like, oh, this node count is this or this node count is that, those are the, easy, the most easy to game stats uh, any any time and it could be one person running a thousand AWS nodes, um, right? But if if a, if a network has very low node count, then you know they're not even they're not even gaming it. You know, so then it's really bad. Right, and I think that that's why you could make the argument that uh, purposeful nodes are nodes that are being run by users with an economic stake in the network, not just random nodes being run on virtual servers. Yeah, I would I would say so. Yeah, like real nodes. All right, so uh, sorry I, I cut you off there, but Segwit2x now, where, where are we at now in the time period? What time period is this where you're, you're a big blocker and you're getting well, into no, no, debates on IRCs? No, no, big blocker, I was IRCs. like a big blocker-ish in like 2015. It was like for a couple months. It was like six or seven months. Uh, okay. It just seems simple, you know? Kick the can down the road. And here's the thing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. If, if you ask most people, like at least behind closed doors and like not on... Uh, social media or something I'm recording, they'll say like, you know, they're not against like a reasonable increase, just like a small increase, fixed, like one time, you know, not something that just keeps scaling up indefinitely, like just to give us a little bit more, you know, a little bit more headroom. Um, right. But uh, the problem with Segwit2x was that it was a closed group of people in 2017, I think it was during like the consensus conference. Yeah, 2017 consensus. Right, which is already like shitcoin central. They had like how many business owners? They had like 20 hotshots in Bitcoin all conspire and make this this deal. The New York Agreement. So I've actually got a list right here of some of the big names that were involved in the New York Agreement. Um, and a lot of them, you know, you'll still recognize today. Coinbase, Blockchain.info, Circle, Shapeshift, BTC.com, Bitcoin.com, Bitmain, Bitfury, BitPay, Digital Currency Group, Abra, Purse, Zappo, and supposedly, you know, the narrative was 80% of the network hash rate. Right. Which was never really, you can never really prove that, but yeah. They had it like right. pledged. I mean, and Bitmain was the big dog, right? Bitmain at that time probably controlled like 
at least even if it was indirect, if you include indirect, like they control like 60, 65% of the hash. Right. So here we had this debate going on, right, amongst all of these these anonymous internet dwellers. And suddenly this, uh, this turning point emerges where this debate becomes highly politicized. And you have these corporations with financial interest in, in services that they provide for this network that are trying to steer the narrative, that are trying to say, this is the direction that we need to go and this is how it's going to happen. Right. So but they so did what it happened? behind closed doors. And then they announced right. it like, this is what's going to happen. They didn't announce it like, oh, this is what we propose. You know, like they're like, this is what, what you're going to do. You have no choice. And do you think that that, uh, that polarization of, of outcome is sort of the reason why even today people are a little bit wary about saying, yeah, I might support a small block size increase uh, behind closed doors. They might say that, but not out in public. But, so. The other yes, but the other thing that we kind of missed. This is there. This is so dense. Um, I have no notes in front of me. Okay. The 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 other thing that we kind of missed is is that so we ended up having these two camps. One camp that wanted the on chain scaling, and the one one camp that you know wasn't necessarily against on chain scaling, but thought layered approaches were really the way to go. And by doing layered, we could have more. We can we can go more centralized on the layers. So we can get mm-hmm. that low, lower fees, fast confirmations and everything um, without making that trade off on the base layer. We can do it on a higher layer and get the best of both worlds. Um, mm-hmm. But to do that, we needed, we needed SegWit. So, right. so SegWit was like, it was, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a fan of, of scaling in layers, like SegWit was absolutely of the utmost importance. And, you know, at first we thought they were, we were going to need a hard fork. And then I think Luke was the one who was able to figure out a way to do it as a soft fork. And then, but so at that point, like Bitmain and a lot of uh, uh, Bitmain specifically as a miner was, you know, they were really concerned about transaction fees. That's, you know, where they're going to make the bulk of their money going forward. Um, they lose con- they lose control of the network and they lose a cut of those fees because it goes to the second layers. Um, so, and sure. then the other the other thing I think about SegWit is if implemented as a soft fork, um, SegWit broke uh, covert ASIC boost, which Bitmain was rumored to be using. Um, Interesting. So that's another and that uh, covert ASIC boost gave them like a thirty percent advantage over anyone who wasn't using it. So that's like a massive reason alone uh, to try and block SegWit. Yeah, and so here's a question I have as a, as a, uh, and as a sort of an outsider looking back at this retrospectively. Was SegWit contentious at all before uh, the SegWit 2x debacle? Because nowadays, you know, you see like the Bitcoin Cash camp that make the claim that SegWit was unsafe from a technical perspective. But back then, I didn't really get the sense that that was even a narrative. No, it, ab- it absolutely was. It was that SegWit changed. It was. Uh, like the FUD lines that like SegWit addresses aren't safe and stuff. And then it's like not Satoshi's vision. That Those FUD lines absolutely existed back then. Um, and that's why... That's why these industry leaders thought they could save face by agreeing to SegWit plus uh, a doubling of the block size. Um, what what they what the the plan was never going to work because the way they modeled the deal anyway, uh, 
was we activate SegWit first, and then the block size comes like six months later, the block size increase. As a hard fork, right? Right. So, because it's automatically a hard fork when you increase the block size. Right. And, and so like in layman's terms, like let's say I don't know the difference between a soft fork and a hard fork. I don't need you to explain the nuance of a, of a soft fork. But what actually happened in practice? Um, how did we go from this manufactured consensus, you know, this politicized consensus for SegWit 2X to, you know, here we are today and, and we, don't, we didn't get that. How, how did that transpire? I think that... The term consensus is a funny term. What is consensus? Um, it's really hard to judge consensus before the fact. It becomes immediately obvious to judge consensus after the fact. You know, Bitcoin is designed in a way that it's really hard to change by design. And that's super important um, because if if you can change it easily, it's... It's a major attack vector. You know, you, you just you change it in a negative way. Um, so it's really resistant to change to begin with. And any change that breaks current clients is going to be extra contentious. So if you hard fork, you break current clients. Basically, everyone has to update. If they don't update, they don't follow the, the new fork. Um, so... So... You, you don't really realize like what and I there's two ways in my mind to judge consensus. You have the futures markets, if there's actually liquid futures markets, which they mm-hmm. actually seem to be doing better even when the shitcoins fork now they have liquid uh, futures relatively liquid futures markets. Um, but then you also have literally right after the fork, like people are gonna trade them against each other. As you can see with like Bitcoin Cash and like Bitcoin gold, um, where we're basically the users and the market has spoken. Those are both minority forks and they're just going to trend to zero long term. Um, because because that that's how you really I think that's how you ultimately you, you ultimately judge judge consensus. So I don't think like the miners really choose which way to go um, when right. there's a fork. They go the way the market's going to pay them more money. Because like their blocks are right. locked up too, so they, they have to wait, I think, 100 blocks before they even get paid. Right, right. So, and I want to point out, um, I believe at the time, you know, the futures markets were indicating that there wasn't any economic support for this SegWit 2X hard fork, that, that people were leaning more towards um, the, the SegWit no 2X side. Is that, is that what you remember? Right, yeah, and that, I, that's the path I was going with that line of reasoning, and then I forgot where I was going with it. But yeah, there was never really any support in the futures markets for it. I mean, I remember in October, I was like, like well, first of all, I remember when, when the New York agreement came out, there was two things. Everyone was pissed, and the second thing was pretty much everyone agreed that, okay, we'll just activate SegWit and then just not do the 2X part. And then the third thing is that, yeah, the futures markets were overwhelmingly for um overwhelmingly for uh not 2x not forking and i remember i to the point where i I, it's really i don't ever delete any of my tweets and there's a lot of us like that on on bitcoin twitter which is good 
it, the the search feature on on Twitter is phenomenal. So like if you go back yeah. to like the couple months before uh, the Sega Two X fork date, like a lot of us were calling saying that you know there was like no because there was major fud going on. I remember, and it was coming from Segwit Two X supporters, and they were like, "You're dooming us. Like Ethereum's gonna flip Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin's fucked." And like meanwhile, we were trading at like six thousand dollars. It was like right before we were gonna hit the all time high. Right afterwards. Um, so yeah, but, but from my point of view, it was, it was pretty clear, um, that they, that they weren't going to be able to do two X and that there was, there was a possibility there, I guess, if, if Bitmain really wanted to go for it, they could try. And then in that situation, like we would have like, it'd be messy, but you'd have some, we'd have to fork out POW, switch our POW, um, and you know handle that but like the markets would be clear about which which one had more value i think yeah so i think it's interesting and, and i have actually heard um technical argument i think it was john newberry uh, that was talking about how big blocks can actually give really large mining groups a little bit more of an advantage uh in in the mining market just because of the way the headers are hashed Right. And if you're the one who discovered the most the previous block, then you're first up um, to begin searching for that next block. Right. I, I hope I'm explaining yeah, that correctly. selfish mining um, through selfish mining. Right. And, and so in that case, even there was more incentive, you know, for for some of these larger operations like Bitmain um, to actually try and insinuate that there was market consensus for uh, the Segwit2x. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, I mean that's why Bitcoin Cash exists. Um, and and then yeah, if if you increase if you increase the block size, it it benefits um, it benefits the the largest miners um, because because of latency because you have to transmit that information you know across across the globe. Uh, and and if they're actually actively being malicious, um, then that could be even worse because if they're doing selfish mining and they're not actually when they find a block they don't broadcast it right away they wait a little bit and start looking for the next one and that can add up they can start getting a bunch of blocks in a row because of that um the other thing is you know uh a lot of altcoins they like to to brag about confirmation times uh how how quick their blocks are um confirmation times quicker confirmation times don't necessarily mean more security like it takes more litecoin confirmations to get the equivalent amount of security of bitcoin doesn't matter how many right. bitcoin cash confirmations you get like it'll never be the same amount of security as like two bitcoin right. confirmations or whatever um and and you're also increasing the the bandwidth right. load on your on your nodes it's an effective block size increase like if you have if you have like uh, two and a half minute blocks and they're they're two megabytes, like that's equivalent of of uh, eight megabytes on a on a ten minute chain. And then the other thing is it it makes that latency issue a bigger burden, right? Because there's a smaller smaller amount of time in between blocks. So percentage wise, selfish mining, especially at bigger block sizes, becomes even more effective. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned earlier. Uh you you kind of touched on this, but I think that there's there's some more that we need to unpack. You said that 
SegWit2x sort of exposed that the miners were not the ones controlling consensus. Now, one of the arguments that's commonly made from the Bitcoin Cash Camp, which the fact that, that they still exist to this day kind of boggles my mind, but you know, they, they look at the white paper and they say, well, Satoshi said that one CPU equals one vote. Can you touch on the, the nuance of that? Um, well, I mean, Satoshi's time, uh, like, if you ran a, like if you ran a node, you were also mining. Um, right. I, uh, I mean, Satoshi wasn't infallible. Like he was, he, she, they was just a person trying to figure this out. And, um, he, it does seem like there's like a couple quotes there that kind of make it seem like their nodes are going to be in specialized server farms or something. Um, some people say like, oh, maybe he's like kind of talking about what ASICs became. Uh, you know, one of the things that I'm not even sure if when he said that pool mining existed yet and pool mining meant that right. you didn't have to run your own node. Um, you didn't have to run your own node to mine. You could just point your miner at someone's someone's pool and they, they run a node. Like if you use a pool, the pool operator runs a node and none of the, in, the individual miners are running their own node. Now, uh, like the blue mat, uh, Matt Corallo has a proposal, uh, Better Hash, which basically flips that on the head, which allows the individual miners to run their own nodes. Um, I think that would be amazing. That would be amazing to see. And that kind of goes back to, you know, uh, one CPU, uh, one vote. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's definitely not, that's definitely not the case for Bitcoin today, nor should it be that one CPU is, is one vote. Right. And well, when I read that, you know, in the context of today, looking back at all the things we've learned from Bitcoin in the last decade, I get the sense he was talking about, you know, one, one CPU, meaning like one node, meaning like one user, meaning like one participant in the network, not necessarily one miner, um, which I and I and I think SegWit2x really gave us concrete evidence that even if that was what Satoshi meant, that's not the way that the consensus works now. Um, because of the fact that we have so many users running their own nodes. Yes, I, I think, I think it all comes down to that. It's just like, it's ridiculously hard to change Bitcoin. Um, and and so like you really need like over overwhelming consensus from like all stakeholders basically. Um, hmm. It's like the ultimate check and balance. So like I some people go on the flip side and they say like like nodes matter more than miners. Like I mean like that's obviously I don't think that's true either. I think right. they all matter and you need to have you know like even I think even the guy who and like a lot a lot of people will probably give me shit for this but I like even the guy who holds a bunch of bitcoin with a custodian matters. Uh, because he's going to decide if the custodian gives him, gives him access to, to, to four coins, like he's going to decide as well, uh, you know, how he, how he values the, the two, the two chains. Interesting. And yeah, you mentioned earlier, which, which I thought was a really good point that miners, uh, miners serve the blocks, you know, they're, they're providing a service to the market because there's market demand for, Block space, obviously, um, 
I, again, I would quote John Newberry. He said in one of his presentations, and I love this, he said, uh, uh, minor, or it is not from the miners that we expect our blocks, but out of their regard to their own best interest. It's like a play on a quote from Wealth of Nations of the butcher and the baker, how you don't get the, your dinner from them out of their benevolence, but from their regard to their own interest, meaning that they're meeting market demand. They're providing a service that the market wants. I want to put my Bitcoin in the blockchain. Well, the miners have to hash that in for me. Yeah, I mean, the miners are like the ultimate level of skin in the game. And, and, if, and if, the, if, if, if Bitcoin dies or the POW has changed or something like they're stuck now that we have ASICs, like they're stuck with a bunch of bricks that are like worth nothing. And every, every right. second that they waste not mining Bitcoin is, is lost money because their, their miners get outdated. And so, yeah. And, and I feel like we could go down the, uh, the, the algorithm rabbit hole there, but we probably probably should save that one for another time. But, uh, so, why do you think, and, and this is something that I hear people bring up a lot, they talk about like XRP, for example, and I don't want to get into XRP because I don't even want to really talk about it, but they'll say, you know, oh, well, XRP, they would never censor their network because that would be, they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. You know, they have economic interest in protecting, you know, the, the censorship resistance of their network and on and on and on. Why do you think it's so important that when we're trying to maintain censorship resistance of Bitcoin, that we keep the network distributed? It's, it goes back to our, like our earlier conversation. Like, absolutely, Ripple doesn't want to censor their shit. Um, but they're going to be forced to. And it's going to be like really easy to force them. They're a San Francisco-based company. You know, it's the same reason. You think PayPal wants to close people's accounts? Like, PayPal doesn't want to close anyone's accounts. They just, they have no choice. They're forced to uh, by regulators. Um, so the more distributed Bitcoin is, the harder it is to be taken down, to be killed. You don't want central points of failure. Um, uh, you don't want... A, a, a way that I like to uh, think about it is is you look at these networks and you think like, okay, you know, we're trying to make here, we're trying to make like a global open financial system. And money is, you know, there's very few things that are more powerful than, than sound money and free speech. Like, so they're going to, you, you'd be naive to think that the powers that be aren't going to fight it. I think, so, so when I look at this stuff, I think like, okay, if I'm the U.S. government, how would I take this down? Um, if I'm the Russian government or, or, or the Chinese, or if I'm just a wealthy businessman, if I'm Elon Musk, like how do I take this down? Because if we have, it's, it's not just for, um, it might not necessarily be for just a power control type of thing. If we have like liquid markets and stuff where you can short Bitcoin, then there's a financial incentive to attack it as well. Um, so, yeah, so like, like one thing I, one thought I had is like, you, it can get crazy. Like it could get, they, they, when we have, you could, we could be talking about things like drone attacks, uh, raids, any, anything under the sun, um, imprisonment, obviously. And then for all these like chains that have, 
like U.S. companies running them. Like you don't even have to get to that level. That's you just you just threaten them with jail time, and then they'd have to do what you say. Right. And, and, you know, you could even see the legal precedent for like extradition, you know, is like, oh, well, you're you're uh, facilitating money laundering cross borders. You know, we're going to bring you over to the U.S. And, and try you for that. Yeah. Look what they did to Assange. Yeah. And he didn't even like fuck with their money. They can do some crazy stuff and everyone if, if like n- being naive is like in a huge liability in this industry. I think that was one of, I, I'm not so sure that Gavin was necessarily a bad actor, but I think he was, at least he was incredibly naive and he was way too naive to be um, running a project at, at the scale of Bitcoin. And, and that's interesting. That's an interesting thing to think about. You know, when, when we look at, this lesson that we've learned from Segwit2x and we, and we kind of take it all into context and we look at the meta, you know, there is some justification for all the arguments that were made, I think. You know, it, it everybody at least made sense. Whether or not their arguments were technically sound, you know, you can understand at least their intentions. But it also gives me pause and it makes me wonder, you know, was there somebody behind the scenes here that was operating, trying to open up some sort of attack vector? It's it's definitely possible. I, I mean, I think... I. I think so. Uh, I think it was. I, mean, I think it was a mix of of Bitmain's greed, um, and like maybe some bad actors there. Like I think. Like I kind of think Hearn was a spook, um, but uh, yeah. I mean, that's how you would attack Bitcoin. The way you attack Bitcoin is you would you would create a narrative around increasing the block size, and then you would keep increasing it. Um, until there was so few nodes and so few miners that it'd be extremely, extremely easy to regulate or, or just remove or make it illegal and, and basically remove it from existence. Right. And, and that Hegelian dialectic is used in a lot of geopo- geopolitics and like uh, international wars and all, all kinds of things, you know, where you manufacture a conflict and then manufacture a resolution to that conflict just to move something in whatever your desired direction was. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of it was, it wasn't just, it wasn't just a block size increase. They were, they were trying to sidestep the existing uh, core developer group that we have and the, the, like the hierarchy and everything that's set up over there and, and, tried, and, and tried to put in their own, their own teams because they, they, that, was, that was the biggest threat to them. Um, like getting what they wanted. They wanted, you know, like fortunately, like we have very, very principled core devs who who are mostly volunteers and um, and they realize that the most important thing is maintaining censorship resistance over all else. Like that is where all mm-hmm. the value prop lies because otherwise, if, if you don't have censorship resistance, like it's always cheaper to just use Venmo or use Swift or use whatever. Right, right. Because this never really was necessarily about just fast, cheap transactions, like uh, like the narrative led a lot to believe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, some people did believe that, so they also... And that's understandable, I think, you know, especially in the time period when that was one of the core features, you know, of, of Bitcoin in the earlier days. Yeah, I just, I think, oh, absolutely. I just think, you know, it comes down to the fact that, like, nothing in life is free. Um, if you're, and I, I, I try and bring this up a lot, but like 
for instance, like even a transaction always has a cost on any of these chains that you send, but sometimes it's like right. hidden. It's just hidden more from the user. You know, some chains do that by adding constant inflation, um, so that you're basically every single person is that that's holding the the coin is paying a portion of the fees, whether or not they're sending it out. It's like socialized fees. Um, some like Nano, for instance, I was looking into Nano during the 2017 craziness, um, and and the the first thing that it became immediately apparent is that you have um, it's it's a proof of it's a delegated proof of stake system uh, with with no transaction fees and no inflation. So that what that means is that all these nodes are running unlimited free transactions and they're not getting paid for it. Right? So 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 who's paying are those transactions free? No, those transactions aren't free. The guys running the nodes are paying the transaction fees. They're that's essentially what's happening there. They're paying it with their bandwidth, their electricity, their uptime, everything. So there's no such thing as a that free transaction. It's just you have to ask yourself who who the hell is paying for it. Right. And we could kind of shift gears here, you know, these days, a lot of people kind of say, well, you know, I'll run a node when there's a financial incentive for me to run a node. Um, but I really think that that's kind of the wrong way to look at that. Because as a user, you know, you, you only seek to benefit as a user from running a running a node. And the benefit is, is, you know, your own financial sovereignty, um, to say that you need a financial incentive is to sort of have the model backwards, you know, if you want financial incentive, you become a miner. Um, the node is is for your own sovereign benefit. It's almost a financial incentive anyway. I would say it's like a, it's hard to quantify though, but yeah, you get sovereignty, yeah. you get a, a, a enhanced privacy, and also you help protect a network that you know, and you you help fortify and protect a network that that you hold a lot of value in. Which is there's got there's like there's definitely some non quantifiable uh, value in running in running one. Um, the other thing is like we can't. There's no way to uh, trustlessly reward nodes for being up. Uh, it's too. It's too easy to sibyl that kind of system. Like uh, you could just run mm. up a thousand nodes if you could get paid, and they could all be running on the same AWS cluster, and and you control all of them, and there'd be no way to really tell. Um, mm. That's why proof of work exists in the first place. Because it was a right. verifiable way to distribute, distribute the rewards and distribute uh, the the transaction fees. And you know, it, so it's interesting, and I, and I want to kind of touch on um, the sort of like the the node market right now because you see this this hardware market emerging. It's getting easier and easier to run a node, and not just Bitcoin nodes, but Lightning nodes even too. You know, you have like these integrated um, hardware nodes like like Casa and, and Noddle, um, both have a little bit different design philosophies there. And then you see end user programs that are making it easier, you know, like, like Pierre Richard's lightning launcher, for example, and, and lightning is a different topic, but it's the same concept really. Um, what do you think about, about how it's just getting easier and easier to run these nodes and, and some of these hardware solutions that are coming to the market? Um, you know, even uh, like, even just like installing like the Bitcoin, just installing Bitcoin core. It's like, that's it. You're up and running. It's super easy. Um, mm -hmm. I think like I did it on like a decently fast computer the other day and I got it like fully synced in like nine hours. Uh, 
and that's that should become even easier. I. The other thing is lightning is another boost, an, another benefit of running your own node because then you can participate in in lightning. You can get cheaper transactions, uh, you know, faster speeds, and potentially get some routing fees out of it. You know, it's yet to be seen what's there. Um, I think the future is. I really like this future of everyone having a home node. Um, and you have this, you have this home node, and I think that. I think that we finally have the ability through technology to like take some of the power back to people away from these big mm -hmm. corporations and big governments. And there's a path here where it goes the opposite way. Like it's easier to control people than ever before. And that's like the path we're going down. So I think the, mm -hmm. the best solution to something like that, the most feasible solution is everyone has like a home server. We can call that whatever it is, you know, a node in a box or whatever, but they have a home server at home that they plug in just like they have a router. They already have a router. Um, and everything that people use the cloud for will use this box instead. So like if you want like smart lights that you speak to and you don't want Alexa to be keeping track of everything you're doing, then, you know, it'd be running through this box. If you if you had a security system or if you had smart locks or something, you'd run it through this box. Um, cloud storage, super easy, right? Running through that box. And then, of course, you already have the box. You might as well run Bitcoin on it. You might as well run Lightning on it. You might as well run Tor on it. There's all these different things. And then since that's your hub, your phone can easily connect to it. Um, your hardware wallets should be able to easily connect to it. All your computers can easily connect to it. And it, that mm -hmm. just seems like a, like a really clean way to, to, to make it turnkey. And, you know, with all these things, like you can just do that yourself if you want. You know, you just you put a computer together and you, you run what you want to run on it. Or you can buy one of these, these boxes. And, and, and one of the things I really like about... So Casa is trying to go like the most user friendly. It's like a little bit more underpowered. Then you have Noddle. Uh, what I really like about the Noddle is that they're trying to kind of go for that whole home hub box. They're going to give you like all these mm -hmm. different plugins that you can install and you can choose which way you go with that. Um, and mm -hmm. then and then you're going to have the Samurai Dojo, which I'm pretty sure they're not going to support lightning out of the box in the beginning. Um, but what's interesting there is at least with the Dojo, and I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure Noddle's thinking about doing it too, but definitely Dojo is they're releasing their whole stack so you can just install it on any hardware you want. Um, and I think that's mm -hmm. the, especially with open source software, that's the path that, that we'll hopefully see here. So you can either buy like a pre-configured box or you can configure the box yourself and have like a similar experience. Yeah, uh, that point there that you brought up about having like this this central hub is really interesting, especially now as we're seeing the Bitcoin uh, protocol develop to a point where hardware wallets can actually be more easily pointed to um, your your home node. You know, it, it's it's interesting to think about. You know, if you're a new Bitcoin user, you might not have ever considered the fact that when you plug your Trezor in and you see that you have Bitcoin, you're just taking Trezor's word for it. Unless you take the blockchain ID and you actually go in and look it up yourself, verify it through a third party, or go and look in your own node, when you plug your Trezor in and you see it on the Trezor interface, you're just taking Trezor's word for it that their node has verified that your coins are, you know, uh, belong to you. 
Correct. And same if you go to like a blockchain explorer or something. Um, you're just trusting their node. Uh, and then the other right. thing is if you if you use Trezor's node or if, or if you look up a, a transaction on... If you use Trezor's node, they see all of your transactions. They see all of your balances. Uh, same with Ledger. So like you have to... You're trusting that they're not... Uh, going to disclose that information, sell that information, give it to governments. Uh, it becomes like a major privacy risk. Now, do I think Te Trezor and Ledger are doing that? Like, they're probably not doing that. Um, but that's still, we were talking earlier about like central points of failure. I think that mm -hmm. one of my biggest fears, and I, I kind of love that everyone's talking about it right now on Twitter, um, but it's been my biggest fear for the longest time is that Ledger or Trezor was compromised because not only does that hurt the anonymity like you were almost we were talking about a validation point of view like you don't even know if you own the bitcoin or not which is also super important mm -hmm. but if you talk from a privacy point of view like that doesn't just hurt the privacy of the users of trezor if 30 percent of coins being moved around and everything are sitting on trezors then they can deduct what's going on on the rest of the chain much easier like it reduces everyone mm -hmm. else's an anonymity set tremendously um, but up until this point, it wasn't really easy to use your hardware wallet, uh, with, with your own node, uh, or privately at all, really. Um, I mean, you had, you basically had one choice. You had Electrum personal server, uh, which was, is not, it's not very easy to set up. Uh, it's getting easier. I, Chris Belcher just released like that. I think it was like a, I'm not sure how he did it, but it's like a one click install on windows at least um for electron personal server so that's good but now we also have wasabi which allows you to privately connect into um your hardware wallet um right now wasabi is the only one s sending the filters because it's not active in bitcoin core yet um so there's like a, a tiny bit of trust involved like they could tell you that you only you only look for a block if uh if they if they if their filters tell you that your transaction was in a block, but they pull the blocks from your full node, and they're going to go to integrate it even harder than that. Um, but at least yeah. you can use it privately. Like everything runs through Tor, and your transactions, all your all your addresses and balances aren't being broadcast to everyone. Yeah, I saw Nopara was tweeting about that earlier today about the block filters. Uh, you know, it, it, I think it's I think it's a minor issue, but hopefully moving forward we'll see that we'll see that improved. Um, so, and, and with these hardware nodes, um, especially like these, these pre-built nodes that, that automatically pull software updates. Like, so I have a Casa node, for example, and it, it pulls a software update from, from Casa and I can look and see, you know, what that software update entails. But do you see something like that as another potential attack vector? Yeah. I mean, I look, I, I think one of the issues here is that we can say, don't trust verify all we want but most people mm -hmm. aren't going to be able to audit the code themselves um right so you kind of end up in like a web of trust model um where where you have companies and individuals that have reputation at stake and have built up that reputation over time and you expect them not to screw you over and if they screw you over then the market will ultimately respond um i think from a practical point of view uh, for most users, the way to way way to get around this trust is to basically like run 
run multiple uh, like software libraries, you know, like run multiple uh, from multiple sources. So like you might have your Casa node, right? But then you also have like a node on your computer. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe like I like um, I run an older node. I run I run two different two different nodes. Um, so that way, because like remember like with the inflation bug that that was like the near miss like the older clients would have picked it up but the newer clients wouldn't pick it up um Mm -hmm. and that's another reason why hard forks are so dangerous is because you don't get any of that software diversity of the all the older clients stop stop working so you, you don't get that benefit if there's any if there's any issues with the hard fork there's no there's no backup clients to uh to verify it yeah, like so. So, the, like the other big thing is like hardware wallets, right? You talked about Casa. How about Trezor and Ledger? Like, no one, no one is verifying the code that your Trezor is updating to. Um, right, right. So there's like two ways to avoid that, right? Um, one thing that a lot of people have been saying is, Trezor, like, why are we updating our firmware if it's just to add more shit coins? Uh, you're putting us in unnecessary risk. So you really should. Right. try and limit those updates to as, as few as possible um, so that that attack so so users don't get lulled into a complacency where they're like constantly updating um, and right. then the, the really simple way is like to use multiple different brands of hardware wallets right mm-hmm. so if one of them screws you you know you only you only lose that portion and I would add to wait to install those updates you know unless they're crucial security patches um, why not just wait like a month or two or three to install that that firmware update? See if anybody let somebody else be the guinea pig. You know? Yeah, it's a little bit it's a little bit delicate because for some updates, like you need to up, you should update as soon as possible, uh, depending on what vulnerabilities they're fixing. Um, but yeah, I do agree right. in general. I try and uh, don't rush to update so quickly. But like at the same time, like if it's like a hardware wallet. Yeah, you gotta like look at you gotta look at the change log. You gotta like see what people in the community are saying about it and stuff, and and just and stay vigilant. Hmm. Well, I think that that was a, a really comprehensive look at a lot of uh, in-depth information. Hopefully, people that are listening to this can can maybe go back through, chew on certain parts of that, re-listen if you have to. I know it's a lot of technical, heavy information. Uh, it's a lot to take in, but. If you understand like these these tenets of decentralization and and just how much different Bitcoin is than so many of these other protocols out there, then you'll really start to see the value proposition shine through uh, in, in ways that just aren't apparent in, in any other cryptocurrency project out there. But I did promise Matt I would uh, give you a chance to talk about this new project that you're working on. And I just saw on Twitter the other day and it actually looks super interesting. Can you tell us about the final message.io? Oh, I'm super excited to finally get it out there. Uh... So I, you know, Dead Man Switch isn't a isn't a new idea. It's been floated around for a while. Um, I mean, Snowden famously had one, uh, but but the main way of doing it was you'd run it on your own server and set it up yourself, um, which isn't really that accessible for people. Uh, it's not simple at all. Um, and what is a Dead Man Switch? Just for those of us okay, that don't so know. Okay, so Dead Man Switch is. Uh, a switch that is is set up to do something and it does it unless you tell it not to repeatedly 
So the idea is that when you die, you can't tell it not to. So it sends. Um, so like Snowden famously did it because he was like, if I die or get imprisoned, like all the documents I have are going to get get sent to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the ultimate insurance or backup plan. Uh, so I mean, so I came up. So I realized my epiphany was in like 2017. I was like riding my skateboard. Uh, we were at like peak of the bull market. Uh, maybe it was like like November 2017 or something like that. And um, I realized I was like, "Fuck!" Like if I get hit by a car right now, like 70% of my Bitcoin is gone forever. Like even if I live, if my if my head gets fucked up. I'm fucked because like you're always trying to find this balance of convenience and security. Um, Hmm. But like if if you're truly paranoid, which you tend to get, especially during and you should be paranoid that you get during the bull market, um, you start going down rabbit holes like like what is if someone tortures my mom, you know, so (laughs) so it's hard to find a balance between making sure that your heirs get get your funds and that your funds are secure while also, you know, worried about about possible situations like that that you want to avoid. So I was like, okay, what I need is just like a super simple dead man switch. I just need a super simple way to... And at that time, um, multi-sig wasn't really that accessible yet. Um, so when I first envisioned it, I kind of envisioned it as uh, I'd give her like an encrypted hard drive and then I would just send the encryption password uh, through the messaging service. So that way, if someone got the password, they couldn't get anything anyway because they don't have the encrypted hard drive. And and for her, uh, she just has the encrypted hard drive. So if she gets compelled to give it to someone, she doesn't have the password. So we're all good. And no- nothing existed. Literally, absolutely nothing existed. It was, I had to run my own server to do it. So I was like, well, that's fucking ridiculous that, that it doesn't exist. So then I was like, okay, so let's build it. Um, and we just went through like a ton of different rabbit holes uh, before we landed on the current setup. And what was really concerning me was that it needed to be done securely in a way that, that, that there was no way you could lose any money. Um, and I'm, we got, we're really fortunate, Bitcoin has matured so much over the last two years, we're really fortunate that, that multi-sig solutions have become so much easier to use. And hmm. multi-sig really changes the game here because even if, 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 if you use multi-sig with, with our service, so our service is just super simple. It's I try to make it as simple as possible, kind of idiot proof, um, no tracking, full you know, as, as private as as like try to make it super private. Um, emails are optional, and it just sends an email address to to the recipient of your choice um, when you stop responding. So, and you can put any message in there. But like if we talk about multisig, it makes it super convenient because. Because you could have, let's say, like a one of three multi-sig. You hold two keys, your air holds one, and then you put one key in the message. Even if that message gets compromised, 
we're like back in the same situation as that hard drive. If even that message gets compromised with that one key, no one can spend your funds. Um, and mm. with multi-sig, you can get really creative with it because like imagine if you had like a five of eight setup and you had like mm -hmm. four errors and we can set, you can set multiple email address recipients in a single message. Um, so you can send the four errors a fifth key and the four of them not only have to come together and combine their keys, but then they also need the fifth key that was emailed to them. So, so users, I wanted to make it like just a really simple, straightforward, what we provide. And then users can be like incredibly creative in the actual process of, of how they use it, how they choose to use it. That's really getting my gears turning about like potential future applications for that. Like, I don't, I, I don't know. This is, this sounds crazy, but like a microchip tied to your heartbeat or something. And if, if your heartbeat stops moving, it flips the switch and, and sends out the email. Well, yeah, so that was the issue. So our issue was like, how do you know if, if, if someone, if someone dies, um, how do you know? And then like, that's not like an easy, that's not easy to solve solve thing so like right now right. the the way we did it was so, so we set up a bitcoin payments only bitcoins accepted uh you could either pay on chain or lightning uh you know we prefer if you pay lightning especially since it it's gonna right now the lowest you can set it to is a, a week but we're gonna let you scale it as low as you want so then all of a sudden the fees don't really matter that much to us and uh, that way we don't have to ever have ads or sell your information or anything like that. I want to be able to just provide a reliable, um, sustainable just tool here. Um, we encrypt everything client side, but like I wouldn't, uh, you shouldn't like trust browser based encryption. So if it's something that you, you should consider, whatever your message is, may, operate under the principle that if it gets, if it gets intercepted, then you're good. Um, and I just think it's like more of a redundant tool. Uh, one of our, I hate when people don't talk about trade-offs. The, the main attack vector we see right now is someone could, you get a random account ID number. Uh, that is how you can add more time to your switch. Um, if someone gets that account ID, they could presumably keep paying us money so that your switch never expires. We don't allow you to ever cancel it. So, because I was worried about that because I didn't know how to make it so that someone couldn't cancel your switch on you. Um, hmm. Right now we're thinking about making an optional two-factor uh, like o OTP time-based, uh, like, like Google Authenticator style two-factor. Um, and mm -hmm. if you option, if you enable that, then you can only add time if you have the two factor code and you can, you can, well, I think we'll let people cancel if, if you have the two factor code. I think that's probably mm -hmm. like a, a solid, a solid balance there. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that sounds like a really interesting project. I, I am definitely going to check that out. And finalmessage.io, guys, if you want to check out that project, and I will put a link as well to that website down in the show notes. Uh, I encourage you guys to check that out. It's it's something that I, I think about a lot, you know, like what would happen if I just got into a car accident tomorrow? Um, I don't really have a plan for that at the moment. You know, my Bitcoin, someone would, either someone would have to be smart enough to figure it out or it would just be gone. So uh, I think I think that's definitely the direction we need to head in. Yeah, I mean, I... 
as the price goes up, people are going to care more about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's for and, sure. And the other the other trade off is uh, you have to trust us to actually send your message. You know, I so I went down all these different rabbit holes about making it like, how do I make it like as super trustless as possible and all this other stuff. But I think like at the end of the day, like a service like this, like I can keep it. It's it's a heavily centralized service. Uh, you're trusting me to send out the message, but you're not trusting me with the contents of the message. I, 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 I live in America. I probably will, will never be compelled to shut it down. So there's really like no harm there. I can't see the messages anyway. Um, and I think that you can just solve that problem if you just have multiple, like I'm, I'm hoping that there'll be other dead man switch providers. So then if you just mm. use multiple of them, or if you use something like Unchained Cap, and you put one key in uh, Unchained Capital's multisig, you put one key in final message, then you also have Unchained Cap is also backing you up. They can sign or you can sign with the final message key. It just gives you like a little extra level of redundancy. Why drive myself crazy? Let me just ship this tool and then I can, then I could focus on other things. That sounds like a really smart solution, actually, uh, diversifying your your risk portfolio there for the multisig. Well, uh, Matt, we're about out of time, man, but thanks so much for, for coming on the show today and explaining all this stuff. I think that this was a great episode. I think people are going to like to uh, hopefully learn a lot about all of this that we went through. Yeah, I, I, had, a great, I had a great time, and I really appreciate you having me. All right, guys, welcome back. I know that that was a pretty technical-heavy interview. There's a lot of information to chew on. Um, both Matt and I kind of had to make sure that we were keeping ourselves on track during that conversation, trying to keep the conversation focused and useful. I hope that you had a lot of information, valuable, useful tools that you were able to draw out of that discussion, and hopefully they can give you more confidence and understanding in Bitcoin moving forward and, and help you better explain to people you know, the differences, the very subtle differences in the technology in the cryptocurrency space. I think that the key takeaway that I took uh, after sort of chewing on what Matt and I talked about is that Bitcoin is hard to change. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing for us as users. And that's a good thing for the network as a whole. And we want it to stay that way. So be a good Bitcoiner, run your own full node. And Let's keep this network decentralized. If you enjoy the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, you can find all of our episodes at BitcoinEchoChamber.com, or you can find all of our episodes on pretty much all of your favorite podcasting services, whether it be Overcast or Spotify or iTunes or uh, the Google Podcast Store. All the episodes are free. They're always going to be free to listen to. And if you like the show and you find yourself keep coming back for more, why don't you go ahead and give me a like or stars or subscribe if you can on whatever platform you're listening to on. It really helps out my metrics and I really appreciate it. And if you want to support the show a little bit further than that, or if you're a sponsor and you want to reach out for advertising, or if you just want to chat with me, if you have questions, you can drop me an email at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at heavilyarmedc, that's the letter C. That's all I got for this one, guys, and I will see you in the next one.
Whoa!